This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, Melbourne, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo on this beautiful, sunny Melbourne day. It is glorious, and it is not sunny in the studio, I might say. I'm Dr. Shane. I'm joined in the studio by my colleague, Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning. Do you know the problem with nice weather like this, though, is that my husband drags me out into the garden. So we did 12 hours straight of gardening yesterday. Really? Yeah, I know. And I have, like, rose thorns all over my arms and my legs and... It's terrible. It's I'm wounded. It is good for me. And the garden looks amazing. Yeah, I've been overdosing on tangelos this week. Yeah. it's <laughs> a good idea. <clears throat> I think I've eaten somewhere between 12 and 18 tangelos this week. You, I think you're looking a little bit orange in the face. Yeah, so sure if, there is a sh- if there's an unexpected break in the show, folks, it's because I've got to run to the bathroom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those things can go through. Uh, now, we have a massive show ahead. We're going to talk in a moment to a couple of... Um, rock people i'll explain that in further detail <laughs> we have the chief scientist on later in the show and then we have a guest uh dr rodrigo hamid from uh, the university of uh, tasmania who's going to be talking about some tasmanian devil research as well so it's a big show but to start off we have dr julie boyce and dr jim driscoll both from monash university in the studio julie is uh, from the uh, volcanology and geochemistry section in the Monash uh, Volcanology Research Group and Jim is from the School of Earth Science, Earth, Atmosphere and Environmental Science. Is that right? Jesus, correct. <laughs> at Monash University. Now, you guys have set up something absolutely amazing down there at Monash University called the Earth Sciences Garden, which has, and just this is the information you sent me, some 500 rock specimens weighing in excess of 14 tonnes. Jim, let's start with you. What What's the deal with this rock? Did you guys just have excess stuff and, you know, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't house it anymore? What, what's gotcha, the deal? I wish. Um, well, um, it was started about a year ago, actually. We were... Uh, we were given the opportunity by the Faculty of Science at Monash University to actually um, build an outdoor teaching laboratory, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, there's 500 rocks there. There's 20 different types of rocks, so different sedimentary, igneous, and metamorphic rocks. Uh, and, yeah, they're pretty big. Okay, <laughs> huge. Yep, big stuff. And, yeah, uh, basically the, we were, the, uh, the remit we were given was to basically uh, build um, a, a garden which reflects the, uh, the geology of uh, Victoria uh, and do it in an interesting and innovative way. Um, and yet we had to choose every single one of those 500 rocks. Had to go to every quarry, pick every sample. Oh. So it was a pretty big undertaking, but boy, we had some fun. <laughs> J- Julie, is this, is this open to the public? Like, can I just wander down there? I mean, you know, most universities you can just wander onto the campus. Can you can you wander in and have a look at yeah, this? Yeah, you can wander in. Anyone can come to the garden, and we encourage everyone to come as well. Oh. There's lots to do and lots to see. Okay, and when you walk around, I mean, is there, you know, information? or? You know? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there is some basic information, yep. um, but basically the, uh, the main focus of the garden is basically to have it as a teaching tool, so Right. For our undergraduates, particularly um, now, to be able to uh, take our undergrads out to uh, you know ten meters from when they're actually in their lessons, uh, to come out and actually play around with uh, various aspects of the rock, uh, the Earth Sciences Garden, mm-hmm. uh, really, really makes a difference. So uh, yeah, and especially we're trying to get teachers and high schools and uh, to come out as well and start using it um, and collaboratively working with the education people uh, around Monash University and uh, the uh, the suburbs. Mm. I think that's the key. You were saying you know, you're ten meters from the classroom 
time to go and see the specimens. I had a friend who's, who's a geologist, and she said, you know, you have to do field trips, and they'd be travelling for hours to see these things. Oh, trust me, it, it certainly isn't going to replace field trips because yeah. there's nothing better than going out into the great outdoors them. and actually uh, and actually working uh, working in um, uh, in in various far flung places. But what this does do is that when we're teaching our undergraduates about the basics of how they measure rocks, um, uh, how they use geological equipment, we can basically do it in a real, in a real world setting mm. and actually do it in the uh, the Earth Sciences Garden. Um, so it certainly won't be a substitute, but um, it really helps us to get them to the students to, to learn uh, and especially to get you know high school kids over and actually see all of these different rocks all in different positions because every single one of the 500 rocks mm. has its only own position from north, its own dip angle uh, and its own specific position in the garden, which mm. is why it took us sort of like mm. nine months of actually building uh, mm. and uh, and actually the construction work took so long. And mm. do other universities have similar gardens to this or is this a, is this a world first? No. Uh, <laughs> you could have claimed it. <laughs> I would have believed you. It is, it is a world first in terms of there are other rock gardens around the mm. world. Uh, in, notably, there's one in Canada. I think it's the University of Alberta where they do have a similar idea but on a much smaller scale. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the National Rock Garden in Canberra as well which uh, is, is basically putting rocks to, to, uh, for f- uh, Federation rocks in their Federation garden and there are plans to make it as convoluted and uh, and complex as ours but uh, those plans haven't actually yet been uh, finalised so we do think we have a world thing here and uh, and we're very proud very very proud of it myself mm-hmm. Julie and the rest of the team that worked in it now you guys um, as we were, we were talking just outside I, I have a big uh, cabinet at home which I'm sure my wife would like to fill with other things it has has shall we say some beautiful rocks in it? Yeah, and, so, uh, so are my husband. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and when when, when I, look, I mean, I find this stuff fascinating, and I, I find these rocks, you know, even the the ones that people would look at and go, "That's just a rock." Um, they have a history, Ooh. though. They have so much Heresy. information. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hear you. I mean, you, you must, uh, you guys must see this, and there, there's there's got to be a whole narrative behind every one of these 500 rocks. Is, is that right, Julie? Is there? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we use the principle of uniformitarianism, which means the present is the key to the past. Mm-hmm. So we can look at. Pre- that are going on today. We actually have a big clay pan in the garden that makes mug cracks when it dries out. And we've got 20 million year old examples fossilised in the garden in mudstones. And we can use all of the rocks to tell a story about the past. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. The, the, the clay plan plan that we have is fantastic because every time it rains it fills up with water and then the water evaporates quite quickly uh, and you end up with these fantastic uh, mud cracks appearing uh, and as Judy said we can actually look at rocks which are 240 million years old mm. in another part of the garden where you see these huge mud cracks and you can actually relate that back to, um, to you know if you have mud cracks therefore you must have a terrestrial environment um, if you have seashells in a rock you must have a marine environment. Ge- geology is pretty, pretty easy sometimes. Mm. <laughs> now as, as geologists I mean how does Victoria or Australia in general stack up internationally? Have we got some, you know, super amazing rocks here or are we a, you know, a boring flat? Oh, well, you know, we're, we're both from England. I think that I could what? live here my entire life <laughs> and never have to go anywhere else to look really? at geology. It's that good, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yes, we have the ashes, but apart from that, um, <laughs> <laughs> what we do have also, which is absolutely fantastic, like my, my personal favourite rock, and I'm sure Judy will tell you in a moment about hers, but my f- personal favourite rock is we have a 125 million year old sandstone, which uh, was formed when um, Victoria and Antarctica were just splitting apart and a big oh, yeah. river system formed, and uh, 
but that time Victoria was near the South Pole, so we have uh, this this environment in which we have lots and lots of dinosaurs living. So to have dinosaurs mm. living um, uh, and available along the coast here, uh, being found in rocks uh, from that age, the Cretaceous age, is just fantastic. And um, you know they'd have had eight, eight uh, weeks of darkness every year, mm. which means that mm. these these dinosaurs must have really coped with some extreme conditions. Mm. Uh, and it's fascinating, and we have some fantastic rocks like that in the garden. So, so just on, if we just hold for a second on, on a rock like that, how do you determine that story for that rock? How do you know that that sandstone came from a riverbed that was forming as these two large continents were breaking apart? Well, basically, if you go down to the uh, Gippsland and the Otway Coast, what you find is that the rocks there, they're, they're greenish colour, um, and this sandstone has lots and lots of plant material in. Mm-hmm. So we know it's got lots of plant material, so therefore we know it must have been a terrestrial or a land-based environment. Um, but then you start looking at sedimentary structures, things like mm-hmm. ripples. So when you go down to beaches and you go to uh, go to rivers, you often see little ripples forming and sometimes they can be preserved in the rock. And by looking at that and um, taking in consideration all of the different land fossils you find as well in those rocks, it tells you a story. It's a bit like a detective story, I suppose. Mm. Um, but by looking at all of these little bits of information, you get a really good sense of, of why this rock appeared where it was. Uh, look at the minerals in there. Look at other bits and pieces. And that really tells us a story of what that rock actually is. Do, do you guys look at the latest data coming out from the New Horizons probe on Pluto and go, oh, Holy crap, we that do. is we awesome. We love it. <laughs> we tell all our students, so I think they get a bit bored with us sometimes. <laughs> like, look at these photos. Oh, get rid of those students and get some other ones. <laughs> so, yeah. so, last night I was on Facebook because uh, I'd spent about an hour looking at the new uh, the new image that you yeah, can actually yeah. zoom yep. into, and I was on there yep. for an hour last night until about 11 o'clock last night, and I'm such a loser, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're amongst <laughs> friends here. You're amongst <laughs> friends. Very much. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's fascinating because a lot of people wouldn't think that the same process is uh, you know, going on on such a distant world, which everyone thought was just a frozen rock, nothing interesting, but there's a lot of geology, active geology there, isn't there? If you'd gone back to about six months ago and you'd actually looked at some of the data that we knew about uh, Pluto, it would have been about 20 pixels large. Mm. Um, it was just a couple of light and dark patches on a um, uh, on a uh, on a screen. Um, and now we can see ice mountains, which are three and a half kilometres high. We can see huge ice flows. We can mm. see um, impact craters. And some of the first images that came back, actually, were quite interesting because they didn't conform to what we thought we'd find on Pluto, mm. and every day the formation of Pluto was changing in the scientific literature. So, um, so that's why we love science. Science is constantly evolving. It's uh, and science is never a stayed subject. It's just awesome. Mm. Now, Julie, back to you. Do you have a favourite rock out there at the garden? Yes, I do. My favourite rock is the hexagonal basalt. This kind of represents the Organ Pipes National Park. I live near there, and I go there all the time, and it is awesome. Excellent. Yeah. So those basalts are about one million year old. How do they uh, form? Between one and three. So we've got about 437 volcanoes in Victoria. Mm-hmm. Um, so they form, it's a bit complicated. We actually have the, the thickness of the, the Earth's lithosphere is very thick in central Australia and it kind of thins outwards to the south and the east in a stepwise fashion mm. and kind of get big convection cells in the Earth's mantle and it brings up the hot material to the surface. Right. It's, amazing. It's complicated. Yeah. Look, it's amazing stuff. Guys, um, we're going to have to draw it to a close. It's, we could talk about geology forever, especially when I'm in the studio, because it's, it's fascinating stuff. Congratulations on getting this garden completed, because, you know, it sounds like a lot of work, and hopefully it will be an in- incredible teaching tool. And um, is there any plans to add to it or to go further, or is everything there? Uh, no, we are adding to it uh, at the moment. We're looking to get a weather station in uh, for the atmospheric science part of the school, and also we're looking to get some soil profiles in 
so we can actually see how geography and geology are so intimately linked with each other. So, uh, yeah, they're, 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 it will be a, a constantly evolving project, I think, mm. yeah. depending on how much money we get. We're also <laughs> getting a, a geocache, and we have a website up and running as well, so members of the public can go and look at that and hopefully get some idea of what rocks we have. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, right. and also one last thing is if any schools are interested in, oh, yeah. um, uh, in actually, please contact myself or Julie at the university because we are very keen to get school, uh, high school students in particular out to uh, play with the rocks as well. Absolutely brilliant. Sounds great. Uh, Julie Boyce and Jim, Jim Driscoll, thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. We're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in uh, just a moment. We'll be speaking to Professor Ian Chubb, the Chief Scientist of Australia. Triple. Uh, you are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We are joined now via the phone to Professor Ian Chubb, who is Australia's Chief Scientist. Ian, can you hear us? I can. Now, look, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for making some time for us. I know a lot of things are happening up uh, your way in the good Canberra town at the moment with the change mm-hmm. in PM and so forth. You must be excited about the fact that uh, someone is using science in the political sentences these days. I mean, it's uh, it's a stark contrast, and as I said before, the um, we now have the uh, government, and uh, and indeed to an extent, uh, Mr. Abbott's government as well. But the but the government and the opposition both talking about a science policy for the next election. So, can you imagine a future where we would actually be fighting out an election over over science? I mean, it's something many of us have sort of dreamed about for a long time, but it it seems as though it might actually be possible. It does, and uh, and it's uh, I mean it's a great opportunity for us in in science. We can uh, uh, we can help them outdo each other, if I can put it that way. Mm. I think that would be a good thing. Now, give give us a bit of an idea. You've put out a number of reports recently, but if you could just give us a bit of an idea of how Australia is travelling in terms of science and innovation. I remember 20, 30 years ago, our reputation internationally, you know, as a travelling scientist myself, um, was extremely strong. We had this great reputation for scientific excellence. How are we travelling today, though? Uh, well, I think uh, probably much as we were then. I think the... Um uh, our best scientists are uh, easily up there with the best in the world. I mean, we have a, um, a substantial share of the best and most cited uh, publications, which is one measure. Um, and uh, and I think that's something of which we can very, be very proud. Um, our average perhaps isn't where I'd like it to be. I think that if you compare ourselves with the best countries in the world rather than with the world, because mm. I, I think comparing us with the world just drops the too low, but if you compare us with the best countries in the world, then we we, we sit, um, you know, behind countries like Sweden, Switzerland, um, the UK, um, uh, Denmark, and countries like that. If you look at again citation, so it's one measure, and it's it's you know no measure is perfect, and uh, it's um, it's certainly not, but it but it's a good indication of where we sit, and I think that we could do better than that if we were a bit more strategic about it. Is it just about investment, Ian? I mean, we, we hear, I mean, every scientist I know will, will say we need more money in research. Is, is that the main issue or is there a lot more to it? Well, there is more to it. I think, um, you know, it, it's easy to say uh, that we need more money and when you say why, and you, they say, well, we could spend it. Well, why would we spend it? Well, because <laughs> we haven't got enough. I mean, it's a circular argument. Yep. It doesn't, 
doesn't turn the lights on in the eyes of the politicians that you're trying to say to, listen here, this is the highest priority that you should, or you should be giving this the highest possible priority. But in order to do that, you've got to make a good argument. One of the arguments that I think that we have to make is that we need to actually identify where we have some real comparative advantage, where we have some real strength, where we have some real capability, but at the same time where we have some real need. And, um, you know, Australia has a lot of issues where our researchers could be engaged with, and, and in areas where nobody will do it for us. I mean, who's gonna, who else will worry about the Murray-Darling system? Who else will worry about, you know, Australia's renewable energy capability? Who else will worry about... Uh, things that um, are of direct consequence to us, whether it's the Barrier Reef, Sydney Harbour, whatever. Um, and uh, uh, the, uh, those sorts of things are areas where we should be making sure that we're investing adequately to get the sort of outcomes we want. So it's, it's, it, it, and it goes back to the fact of strategy. And, um, and I, I uh, you know, I was a bit dismayed when I first took up this job and I was looking around at what was happening in the rest of the world to find that at that time, I don't know what it's like right now, but at that time uh, we, were, we were about the only country in the OECD that didn't have a big uh, strategic approach, uh, a medium to long term strategic approach to our science and our investment in science. So, um, yeah, they've all moved away from where we were, which was to, you know, plant a thousand seeds and, and uh, when you wanted some red ones, you just hoped that there were some red ones in there. Mm. Uh, um, whereas they made sure that there were red ones uh, in the seed packet. So, so it's really it's really a question of shifting from uh, where we've been to something that says that the resources rationed, the importance is clear, the quality is there. Um, do we do we are we are we focusing enough attention on on the things that uh, are of particular importance to us? And not, and not exclusively or exhaustively. I mean, I, I would never argue that we only, um, or that we drive all of our research support in that way. But we have to make sure that there are some things that we do and we do well. Professor Chalbert, uh, Dr. Lauren here. Look, I, I was really interested in what you're saying about scientists engaging in different areas as well. And I think one of the areas that we seem to lack in is, is engaging with industry. And I actually read a, a, listened to a speech you said where you were talking about the fact that in the US, collaboration between research and industry is about 70%, but in Australia it's about 4%. So, is, you know, what do you think we can do about that to try and engage more with industry? Um, well, I think that uh, both sides have to come to the party. I mean, uh, it's it's all very well for industry to sit there and lament the fact that scientists don't collaborate with them and scientists will lament that industry only wants uh, uh, something done for the minimum cost. It's um, uh, The reality is if we're going to shift that, then they both have to work together to find the common ground, understand each other's differences in culture and, and time frames and all of that sort of stuff, mm. and um, and work out what some of the big problems are that they can, uh, can solve together. Now, one of the other big differences between us and the United States is that um, in the US, the bulk of researchers uh, are in the business world, whereas mm. in Australia, something like 60-odd percent of our researchers are in the university sector and another 10 or so percent are in the um, publicly funded agencies like CSIRO and so on. So, so, so when researchers in the universities in America talk to business, the chances are they're talking to in, in, in the business world to somebody who mm. uh, understands them, talks like them, thinks like them, has a vocabulary like them, mm. and, and understands the various pressures that are on them. Whereas in Australia, that's much, uh, 
Mm. Um, Ian, it's it's interesting uh, when we talk about the the sort of economy and so forth at the moment, and I realise uh, you must cop this all the time. And not being an economist, I suspect uh, if if I was you, I would dodge these questions wherever possible. But I'm going to throw one at you anyway. Is it possible for us to be moving our our sort of economic standing in Victoria from that of a service industry to one that is very much focused on technology and knowledge? Do do you think we can get there, or is the or is the trip just too far for us at the moment? No, I don't think the trip's too far for us. I, I, uh, I do get asked it a lot, and I'm, uh, um, I, I, I despair sometimes at what I see from the economics commentary about, uh, uh, you know, we're just a service. Mm. And I think mm. to myself, my God, is that our future? Mm. Where we bring in the tourists by the plane loads and serve them a cappuccino with a smile, hoping they'll give us a tip. <laughs> or, 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 you know, pretend, pretending that that somehow we're uniquely placed on international education. I mean, mm. I, I was, um, uh, not all that long ago, um, Joe Hockey was, uh, and then Treasurer, was asked um, when the GDP figures came out, you know, what was growing, and off the top of his head, so this is not a criticism of him, I, I, I can understand why he would do it, but off the top of his head, he said there were three things, uh, as I remember the conversation. We were still selling iron ore, uh, service and international education were the three parts of the economy that were growing most. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great to be able to get mm. the pressure of something in three or four or five years' time that mm. actually had something in there about what we made or what we did? Mm. I mean, I mean, we might be a, a high cost, as we were constantly told, but we're also high skill. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we have a very well-educated community, generally speaking. I'd like higher level of scientific literacy across the community, but, but generally speaking, we are. Um, and how do we make the best use of that to begin to turn out products that people actually want to buy? Mm. And that's the question we've got to ask ourselves, and then we've got to be strategic about it. And if we continue to let things just happen, if we sort of muddle along and presume that somebody will, you know, develop another who will always draw a stump job player, then, you know, we've got to remember that they were something like 100 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> long time to wait unless we drive it. And other countries drive it. I mean, you know, I don't know what, if you know what, what's the biggest venture capital uh, funding uh, big, big, what's the biggest venture capital funder in the world? Well, I'll tell you, it's the United States government. Yeah, yeah, I was about to say. I was, mm. almost, <laughs> it's, it's interesting, um, such a difference in culture. You, you mentioned the, the idea of uh, science literacy. One of the things that we've promoted on this program for many years is more uh, a greater spread of generic scientific knowledge to our population. Uh, we, we do a lot about promoting scientific careers, but do you think we do enough about actually promoting more general scientific knowledge as, as a core element, just as, as we teach? English and maths in schools, should we not be teaching science to much earlier levels so that our, our population's general knowledge in that area is, is substantially improved? Um, the short answer to that is yes, we should. Yeah. And uh, it was very pleasing that um, uh, Christopher Pine, when he was Minister for Education, um, uh, announced earlier this year that, that he'd taken to the Ministerial Council uh, a, a proposition that we develop a national STEM strategy for schools, science, technology, engineering and math. Mm. And that was agreed, and he, re he released a report um, probably only about a week ago saying that they'd had another meeting and it was on track. And not the fine detail, and, you know, I don't... I, I mean, I couldn't pretend to know all the detail of all the science that's going on in Australia, but 
but, but enough to be able to understand how science works, what it means to see a discussion between scientists who might disagree, but as, you know, part of the scientific method and so on, um, understanding the basic statistics. Um, you know, we might we might have a discussion about climate change that's at a much higher, more elevated level than the one presently is. Mm, indeed. One of the other things that uh, Christopher Pine came out and said recently was that this idea of making um, a maths or science subject compulsory all the way up to year 12 and that we should be, you know, that should just be a requisite for high school education. Have you got any thoughts on that? Um, well, I, um, so, I, I, uh, so I know why he said it. I know what he said. Mm. Dur- during, during the development of a national STEM strategy for schools, uh, they could consider whether or not making it compulsory. Mm. Um, the instant reaction of that, of course, was that to oppose it by a whole bunch of people. Um, and, uh, and that's generally the way we do things in Australia, it seems to me. You float an idea and they come out and give it a whacking mm. and then, so, you, you know, people stand back. Yeah. Um, my view on the compulsory issue, um, starts with a little story. Um, when I've been out there, you know, commenting on the fact that Enrolments in physics, chemistry, mathematics, and uh, the like in, in our secondary school system and senior secondary school are at their lowest level for 25 years, mm. thereabouts. Um, people say to me, well, it's because they've got more choices. Um, my answer to that is, well, why aren't they choosing to do chemistry, physics, and mathematics? <laughs> and, um, and one of the reasons is that we don't support our teachers well enough to support mm. them in the fascinatingly awesome way they could be. Yeah. And uh, so people would make the choice and say, I want to do that because it's interesting. Mm. And then it's all wrapped up into things like ATAR and sort of, you know, mm. maximising scores and whether schools like to see everybody get perfect scores and, you know, their the best students might and, you know, get the perfect score in physics, but we'll get it in something else. So they encourage them to do that. But, mm. I mean, it's like all these things. It's really very, very complex. But at the end of the day, I guess that, um, you know, if you make something compulsory and you've got a class full of other people's uh, teenagers and some of them really love it and some of them really hate mm. it, then it becomes a very difficult issue to compel people to do things that they're simply not interested in doing. So, mm. so I would much rather that both subjects were taught so compellingly well and so compellingly interestingly that everybody wanted to do them. And that basically means that we've got to support our teachers a lot better than we have traditionally in this country and give them, give them the support they need uh, to have the skills and, and, and equip them with the knowledge they need to teach those subjects in a challenging way mm-hmm. and to interest their students. Yeah, I think that's a good plan, Ian. Um, we had uh, Tim Flannery in the studio just a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about climate and some of these third-way technologies and so forth. It would seem as though we're entering a, a period of almost uh, similar to the arms race where there is a technology challenge ahead that is going to offer an extraordinary number of opportunities to any country that can embrace the culture of innovation and, and science and so forth. Is Australia still you know, in, in a position where we can jump on this really hard. I mean, we've done some amazing thing in in um, solar cells and so forth over the years. Do, do you think we can we can jump on top of this now and 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 really ride this wave because it's going to be an extraordinary period of sort of twenty or thirty years of innovation. Uh, well, it will be, and I think we can do anything if we try. Um, uh, we've got to have the will. We've got to have the support. Uh, we've got to have the leadership, and um, and and we can do anything if we try. We've got talents. We've got skills. Um, we've got uh, capability, 
but it's, you know, we constantly tell, oh, we're just a service economy. Mm. Well, you know, or, or that's, that's our future. Mm. And, um, and I don't look at the future by fixing my gaze on the rear vision there. Mm. I, yep. would like, I would much prefer to say, you know, what do we need to do to position ourselves in the future? And, of course, one of the difficult things for politicians, which is something I don't envy them, but, but it's one of the difficult things, and that is that um, there's a long pipeline here. I mean, if we, um, if we, if we need to, uh, you know, have a cohort of PhD students, um, you know, substantially larger than now and uh, working in, say, the agricultural sciences because we want to, you know, grow a lot more food for the rest of the world, which is another good thing for us to be in, mm-hmm. then you've really got to start, you know, when they're in year 12 and encourage them to think like that and then through university and then do a PhD and then find the employment sector willing to embrace them. Mm-hmm. So you, you're looking at five, ten years. I, I mean, I remind people regularly that this year's school leaders won't enter the workforce till about 2030. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, we can't prepare them like we did people like me, um, uh, but oftentimes we still do. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so I, I think we can do anything if we try, but I think it takes the leadership to say, this is important, this is why we're going to do it. A lot of that's political leadership and some of the benefits won't, um, won't be obvious until they've uh, long departed the scene. But we're building a country here. We're, mm. sort of, we're not looking backwards and saying, that's what it used to be like, let's go back there. Mm. We're actually saying, how do we position this country for all its people to be a prosperous country in all senses of the word, not just economically, but in all senses of the word, uh, by, by, you know, in, in the 2020s, 2030s, 2040s and beyond. And, and that takes some vision and some courage. Mm. But we've got to have it. Then I go back to where I began. If, if we've got that, we could do anything we wanted to do. We've got the talents, we've got the people, we've got the skills, we've got the education, we've got the research. All we need is to get those things better between industry and um, and the research area. We've got to have a bit of daring. We've got to become a bit less risk averse and a bit more risk manager. Uh, all of those things come together, and and uh, we're sailing with, with a good wind. You're certainly not going to get an argument from us, and uh, I think uh, that's, a, that's a good place for us to, to finish. Professor Ian Chubb, uh, thank you so much for being a guest today on Triple R, and we hope that uh, I, I know you're, you're finishing up at the end of the year as our chief scientist. What, what's the plan beyond that? Um, well, I don't have any. I, I, just, uh, did, did, uh, I just tell people that I've discovered uh, Guatemalan rum and rocking chairs. Mate, that, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> I think that's what you'll see me doing. Probably the pair of dungarees with a corn cob pipe. I don't know how long I could stand doing that. Though. Yeah, well, I have to say you've done well not to be doing it for the for the last decade, <laughs> given, given the challenges you faced. Um, thanks so much for representing science so well in this country, and, and we wish you all the best. A pleasure. Thanks, and good luck to you. Thank you very much. Bye. Professor Ian Chubb, Australia's Chief Scientist. Um, you're listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 R. We're going to take a short break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment, hopefully speaking with a researcher down in Tasmania who's looking into some of the issues with the Tasmanian devil population. 3 Triple Oh, yes, you are listening to 3RRR. It's Einstein and Gogo. We're just reminiscing uh, here in the studio over nothing 
at all. We do it a lot. We do it. Um, but uh, we do have another guest on the line now from Tasmania, Dr. Rodrigo Hamid. He's from the University of Tasmania School of Biological Sciences. Rodrigo, can you hear me? Uh, yes, I can hear you, Shane. Now, you're doing some very interesting research at the moment on the problem that has been plaguing the Tasmanian devil population down there, in, in particular the, the facial tumour disease, and you've been monitoring this now for some time. Tell us, what's happening with this disease? Uh, well, it's, there's a lot of things happening with this disease, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a very strange disease. It's a transmissible cancer. Uh, there's only two infectious cancers in the world, around the world, so it's a very unique disease. Mm. Um, and uh, we've been studying a, a population in northwestern Tasmania over 10 years. We've been going there um, every three months, four times a year, uh, and monitoring both the population of Tasmanian devils and also the population of tumors. Mm -hmm. um, so we've found that uh, over the years there has been a selection process uh, that has been uh, favoring the tumor rather than the devil, uh, which is, of course, not news, uh, no, no good news. Mm. Uh, but we expect this kind of uh, competition and selection to occur both in devils and tumors, uh, and I'm sure things will going to get uh, better in the future. But what we've found so far is that uh, the tumors that are more aggressive, uh, that are more, uh, that are better at infecting, and the better killing devils are the ones that have been selected over the last 10 years. So it, it's surprising to me to hear that this adaptation is happening with the tumours, just from the point of view as it seemed to me as though the tumours were doing a pretty good job already, and, and yet they're, they're getting even better at it? Um, well, yes, uh, they're doing a pretty good job because, uh, uh, as you know, they've been growing and growing. In, in the last uh, 17 years since we learned about this disease, uh, what's happening in Tasmanian devils, we've lost about 75 to 80% of the overall mm. population in Tasmania. Um, but, of course, you know, it's a cancer. There's no cure for cancer. Uh, and it's very good at transmitting it basically because devils are very good at biting each other. And this disease is transmitted when devils bite each other. Yep. Um, so it's one of the perfect host uh, because devils can help themselves, and especially they bite each other quite a lot during the mating season, uh, and therefore that's the key time of the year when the disease is passed on. Um, there have been some sort of diversification of tumor genetic lineages over the years. We we have four different strains of, of this tumor, uh, which are based on paratypes. Uh, and uh, the one that we've been studying in, in northwestern Tasmania over the last uh, 10 years, it started as a tetraploid tumor, which means it has four pairs of chromosomes, which is very unusual. It's, it's a sort of a, 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 an error in, in chromosome duplication. But that tumor wasn't that bad for the devils. It remained in the population uh, for six or seven years, and the population was stable. Devils were not uh, uh, dying quite, uh, in, in large numbers. Uh, the prevalence of the disease was quite low. So this, this population of devils uh, spent uh, about six or seven years with the disease without suffering a lot of the consequences that we've seen in other parts of Tasmania. Mm -hmm. And since then, there was a change in ploidy. Then the tumor uh, became diploid. In other words, having two pairs of chromosomes, which is the normal uh, um, Type in, in, in living organisms and then uh, in most living organisms and then this diploid tumor resulted to be much better at transmitting the disease. But having said that, that's, that's half, half of the story. The other half of the story is that devils are also adapting to the disease. This is a, a co-evolution process uh, that occurs not just in devils and tumors but occurs in humans and in many wildlife with different types of diseases. So the tumor is doing the best that it can do for keep infecting devils and for, for keeping alive but the devils also are doing their bit. 
meat. And, and we have found in this population that there are a small proportion of animals that have been able to fight the disease, to regress tumors, or to spend their life, their entire lifespan without being infected. And some of them have been shown to have um, some sort of an immune reaction to, to tumors. So, you know, it, it, at the population level, things are looking that are being selected for the tumor benefit rather than the devil. But I think the devil story is a sort of a slow progress story uh, and hopefully within a few years uh, we'll have this disease having less impact that has um, we've been seeing over the last 10 years. Uh, Rodrigo, I'm really interested in, in where this population is because you were saying that, that they were they were doing quite well. They you know they had the the less aggressive form of the tumor for quite a long time, and it's only recently that they're developing the more aggressive. So whereabouts are they situated? Are they in an isolated location? No, no, no. They are in continuous habitat. This population is in in an area that we call West Pennsylvania. It's about uh, 15 to 20 kilometers west of Cradle Mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, in, in, a, in, in a forestry area. Um, uh, there are tumor variants all over Tasmania. It depends which population or which part of the region you are, what kind of lineage you find. Mm. Um, the problem that we have at the moment is that this is the only population for which we have comprehensive data sets of both devils and tumors at the same time that the disease is actually, that the, the epidemic process is, is occurring. And that's quite difficult to gather for a number of reasons. So we don't have a lot of comparing sites. Mm. We are increasing our sampling now. We are desperate trying to get more funds uh, to be able to do this kind of stuff. Studies at, at a more large, at a larger scale, and that will allow us to compare how devils from other parts of Tasmania and how tumors from other parts of Tasmania are competing with each other. We have to remember that this is a an evolutionary process happening in situ right now. Uh, as as we know, with in humans, with things like influenza or many other diseases, new strains mutate and become more virulent for us, and then we become better at, at dealing with them, uh, and then the, we reach so, um, sort of a, an, an stability. Uh, momentum in which we can coexist with the disease and is not so lethal. We hope that this is the case for devils and tumors, uh, but as I said before, unfortunately, we have very limited data to make a, sort of a, a more comprehensive um, assessment of the situation, and we can only talk about a local level of the population that we've been studying. Mm. Well, Rodrigo, when, when we consider the fact that both the devils are adapting and the tumors are adapting, how hard does that make it for us in terms of looking for a laboratory solution to this particular problem? It would seem, as you, as you mentioned, like with the influenza virus, that we seem to always be playing catch-up to some degree. Yeah, we always play catch up, and that's most, uh, that's the case in, 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 in most, uh, situations, uh, and it's called a wet queen hypothesis in, in, in which, you know, uh, the pathogen does something for its own benefit, and then the host does something for its own benefit, and it's, it's called an evolutionary arm race, because every time that one does something to, uh, cope better, with the disease, then the disease has its own strategy. But the, the critical point is that at some stage, the disease becomes endemic and not epidemic. And that means that the host is able to cope with the disease, the disease is not causing so much, so uh, large mortality, and therefore we can coexist these days with influenza. No matter how good mm. the virus is going to be next year, we're not going to die. So that that is the case when the disease is becoming uh, become endemic rather than epidemic. Mm. The best thing to do for the devil and the tumor unfortunately is time these things take time they happen at an evolutionary time scale but because the disease is a huge impact it's the mortality is almost 100% 
these evolutionary processes are occurring a lot faster because there is not much time left for devils to become uh, sort of resistant or to become tolerant, I would say, rather than resistant to the disease. And that's a big difference because resistant it means that probably one day we'll get rid of the disease. Yep. Tolerant means the devils will be able to cope with the disease. And I think at this point in time, it's very unrealistic to expect we can eradicate this disease from Tasmania. No matter how many things we do in the lab and we test uh, things in the lab to eradicate a disease that is spread throughout Tasmania, uh, it, it is virtually impossible at this point in time. So what we're trying to do is to learn about this evolutionary process and hopefully in the future being able to assist the devil to tolerate this disease and, and this disease becoming endemic. Mm. Presumably this also means that some of the ARC populations that are held here in Melbourne and in other locations will never be able to be reintroduced into into Tasmania uh, because they won't have had those adaptations going through their population, will they? That's a very good point. Uh, having devils in the, uh, there is a thing called the insurance population, which mm. are captive devils and free-range devils. And as you know, there are many in mainland as well. Uh, and, and that is a backup in, in terms of if everything goes really bad, because these things, I mean, this is the story so far. The story can change next year uh, and become a lot worse than it is or a lot better than it is. Uh, at the moment. So we have a backup of devil populations that are um, both in Tasmania and in mainland in case things go wrong. Uh, and that means that we have ensured that we keep the, the, the highest genetic diversity as possible of this uh, captive population. Uh, whether we can reintroduce those devils successfully in mainland, uh, in mainland Tasmania, uh, if, if we ever eradicate the disease or even if the disease is still present, then that's a different uh, problem. We need to assess what are the pros and cons of doing so. Uh, but I would say that uh, every time that I talk about this, my, my, my thoughts are very, um, sort of constant in that sense. There is no magic bullet. Mm. There is no magic solution. A lot of the things that happen with the research sometimes are put in the media as this is the new, the latest research and it's, it's going to mean that devils are either going extinct or not going extinct. And the things are not black and white. This disease is here for good. That's my thought. Mm -hmm. That's my personal view. You may ask different researchers and may tell you different things, but I don't think that I will live to see DFTD eradicated from Tasmania. I foresee this disease is going to live with devils uh, probably for as long as devils live. Uh, and that means that we have to have a much more comprehensive and long-term view of how to solve the problem rather than to try one single magic bullet that is going to eradicate this disease from Tasmania. Yep, and a true statement in so many areas of research, I think, as well. So, Rodrigo, it's great work that you're doing down there. Keep it up, and uh, we will keep a, a careful eye on um, on the research as it comes out, and hopefully the devils will turn the tide in terms of their development and get in front of this disease before their population is completely decimated. So thanks so much for speaking with us today on 3 R. A pleasure. Dr. Rodrigo Hamid is from the University of Tasmania's School of Biological Sciences. Interesting, we, we've heard a lot about the ARC population, mm. the, the sort of population at Hillsville Sanctuary and so forth here in Victoria, mm. but hearing that the devils are putting up a pretty good fight down there themselves, as are the tumours, unfortunately, yeah. um, is, is very interesting. So hopefully they will um, get in front of that in time. 102.7 Thank <laughs> you.
Oh, you are listening to 3RRR. It is a fine Sunday morning. We've got a couple of minutes left to give you some news. First of all, I am declaring a war on European wasps this <laughs> summer. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, that's a, that's a good war to have, really. But... Damn straight. <laughs> 20 years ago, they were public enemy number one, mm. and they're on the rise. We mm. had a bad summer last year, and we're going to have a worse one this mm. year, apparently. So... Do they have any interaction with honeybees? Like, do they? If there's more European wasps, are we well, losing our bees? Well, I don't know, because I have a lot of bees. I, I yeah. try and bring bees into our backyard, yeah, yeah, birds, flowers, a number of things for the veggie garden yep. and um, it worries me so mm. if I see a European wasp you know sorry in trouble you're in trouble you, you, yep, you got to get you got you got to leave you're in the wrong continent <laughs> Give us some science news, Dr. Some science news. Well, I want to do a huge shout-out to a New South Wales student from Redlands High School, Year 11 student Zoe Thompson, who just got a gold medal in the International Earth Science Olympiad in Brazil. Uh, This is really spectacular stuff. So first time Australia's ever competed, 100 of the top high school students from around the world from over 22 nations. We had four Australians that were competing. So Zoe took out gold. We also had Victorian students Sasha Mann and Tim Hume that took home silver medals. So congratulations, wow. guys. Suck that rest of the First world. First time we've ever done it. Apparently, yeah. um, th- what I was reading in, in the news, I actually said, you know, that the other countries were quite shocked. And I'm oh, like, well, ha, ha, ha. Cinderella's coming out of we nowhere. We are great. <laughs> well, we are. We're damn we good are. at science. We're damn good at science. Now, there's a big event on while we speak, isn't there? There is a huge event while we speak. It is the UN Sustainable Development Summit, which is happening in New York as we speak, literally at the moment. Uh, this is huge. So this is 193 world leaders are getting together to commit to the 17 goals that they're going to achieve by 2030. So this arose, the first goals were the Millennium Goals that were in 2000. They really kicked butt on these, to be honest. So they did things like reduced extreme poverty rates by half Mm. from between 2000 and 2015. Still bad, but that's good progress. Still bad, but we've got progress. And look, obviously, we have big issues now. And so the goals for 2030 are huge. I mean, they really are about things like completely eradicating extreme poverty. uh, poverty. There are a lot of goals in there for global warm, uh, global climate change and global warming, mm. and uh, obviously looking at things like uh, food waste and, and yep. ways that we can actually become more sustainable as, yeah. as, a, as an international community. So an important precursor to the Paris summit. Definitely, yeah. definitely. Mm. So yeah, look, it, it, it is huge. We, we really need to move on that. We've enjoyed broadcasting science to you again today, folks. And for all of you who subscribed over the last month or so, we very much appreciate your support as the Triple R. And um, thanks so much for doing that because it makes a huge difference to this station. Dr. Lauren, thanks so much for Ple- today. Pleasure as always. Uh, Liv, for doing our Twitter feed. We're on Twitter, folks, and Facebook. We put a lot of information up there. So if you get a chance, follow us on those two example, great examples of social media, mm-hmm. um, which Liv has dragged me into the 21st century. <laughs> uh, I'm Dr. Shane. It's been a pleasure doing science with you again today. Remember, science is everywhere. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.